What if, what if they actually found the bones of Jesus? Then this wouldn't be true. (laughs) You know, it's kind of like asking, what if my parents had never gotten married? You know, what if I had never been born? Well, it's it's a moot point because I was born. Because my parents were married. And because Jesus did resurrect from the dead and his bones are not to be found. And it's funny because I I think that the the, the sad thing, I think the real tragedy to me is when things like this hit the airwaves and hit the news. The tragedy is when Christians are for a moment shaken. Oh no, what if? You need to understand the absolute reality and the truth of the scriptures and in what we believe. To the point that you don't have to even worry if someone comes along saying, Oh, I have just disproven the whole creation account. We've just disproven that there was ever a worldwide flood. We've just disproven the Bible as a legitimate source of of history and truth and prophecy. We've disproven all of it. What if they say that? Well, they're going to say it. But it's not true. It's simply not true. It's interesting to me because though we're in the book of Joshua, we're going to see something so amazingly connected to Jesus tonight. Something that God did, among all the many things that God did over time and across history, to protect and prepare the way of His Son to come into this world. And it's a wonderful thing that we'll run across here in just a moment. But first, let's pray one more time. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would teach us tonight, would take and use this time for your glory, Lord. Because it's your glory we want to see. It's your coming we long for, that we're excited about. Lord, I was just just thinking during worship about this opportunity to be back in Israel this next week. And and how much I loved it the last time and looking forward to it this time just to walk where Jesus, where you walked in the flesh. And while I know that you are as close to me as you can be, I mean, you, are in, you dwell within me. Um, Lord, there's just something about being there. And the thought that came to me and struck me is that I, I would just do anything to be closer to you. And I believe that's why we're all gathered here tonight. We would do anything to get closer to you to love you just a little bit more to experience your presence a little bit more to be that much more assured that you're coming back to get us we'd do anything for that and so Spirit we ask tonight that you will draw us near to your heart Father that we might even hear it beating as you express your love for us and your desire to have us come home to be with you What a wonderful thought. Father, bless this time in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we were talking on Sunday in Joshua chapter 16. And I'd like to read just a little bit of this again, beginning in verse 1, that the lot for the sons of Joseph went from the Jordan at Jericho to the waters of Jericho on the east into the wilderness, going up from Jericho through the hill country to Bethel. And it went from Bethel to Luz and continued to the border of, our, of the Archites at Adaroth. And it went down westward to the territory of the Japhletites as far as the territory of lower Bethoron, even to Gezer, and it ended at the sea. And the sons of Joseph, that is Manasseh and Ephraim, Joseph's two boys, received their inheritance. And this was the territory of the sons of Ephraim. And then it goes on through that chapter to give the territorial boundaries of the sons of Ephraim. Now down in chapter 17, verse 1, it says, Now this is the lot for the tribe of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph. To Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, were a lot of Gilead and Bashan, because he was a man of war. And so the lot was made for the rest of the sons of Manasseh, according to their families, for the sons of Abiezer, and for the sons of Helek, and for the sons of Asriel, and the sons of Shechem, and the sons of Hefer, and the sons of Shemitah. These were the male descendants of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, according to their families. Now, the two... Uh, allotments of land here given to Ephraim and Manasseh. We talked about Sunday. Manasseh was the firstborn son of Joseph. And yet Jacob, Grandpa Jacob, crossed his hands when it came time to bless them and blessed Ephraim, putting the firstborn, the secondborn, over the firstborn. 
We talked about Sunday how God does that. Throughout Scripture, over and over, He puts the secondborn first. The secondborn slides by the firstborn. And it's that wonderful picture in our lives of how much God loves the secondborn man. Not the firstborn, that of us that's born of water and the flesh, but the secondborn. It's born of the Spirit. The born again person. This is who God remembers, who God loves, who God favors while He forgets the firstborn. And I for one am very thankful He's forgotten about me as a firstborn. He's forgotten about my life prior to Jesus. And as I pondered this, I thought even more so how wonderful it is that I'm in that role of secondborn because there's really only one firstborn who has the right to be firstborn. There's only one who earned the right to have that firstborn status. Only one. We read this passage on Sunday. I want to read it again. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, whether visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. What fullness? The fullness of God. That Jesus bore, carried, was God in the flesh. The fullness of God. And through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Now see, we have a dynamic relationship here with Jesus. A wonderful relationship. That we are in that place of second-born children, favored of God, and we in all things need to go through the air to even receive our inheritance. We go to the air. We go to the one who has all authority and preeminence, the preeminence of the Father Himself, and that is the firstborn, Jesus Christ. And the cultural implications here for a Jewish person is huge. Sometimes that's what we have to do. When we're studying the Old Testament, written in the Hebrew, written by Jewish people, it's good to step into that mindset, into that culture, because it helps us understand what's going on here. The concept of firstborn is one that is easily lost in our culture because it's not that big a deal. Sibling rivalry aside, it doesn't really matter if you're firstborn, secondborn, thirdborn, on down the line. It doesn't matter in our culture, but to Jewish culture it was everything. It was absolutely huge to be the firstborn son meant that you had an equality with the father that the rest of the children did not have. It meant that you as the heir would, when the father passed it along to you or when the father died, you would take over all things and it would become yours. And that's Jesus. Now a Jewish person studying this would would know that right off the bat. They'd understand. They could look at the scriptures and see the word firstborn applied to Jesus and they wouldn't think, oh, well does that mean he was born? Does that mean he was created? No, it means he is heir of all things. Why is it that way? Why did God choose to do it that way? Paul explains to us in a very familiar verse, Philippians 2 verse 6, he says, Christ Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Jesus emptied himself. And we've looked at this verse many times. Emptied. He canoe-oed. That's the word in the Greek. Canoe-o. Jesus emptied himself out. It means to void himself completely of all glory. He had the glory, but he emptied himself of the glory, setting it aside and becoming human. Why did he do that? So that as a son, he would be seen and understood as the heir of all things. He already had the glory. Now he comes and he earns the glory that he already had. Paul goes on in Philippians 2.8 saying, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus earned the right to be firstborn. He earned the position. But Rick, didn't he have the position before? Yes, he already had it. 
He already had the glory. He already was God. But when He came in the flesh, no man, throughout eternity now, no one can ever turn to the Lord and say, well, you know, you just were always kind of there. What right do you have? Like kids sometimes will say, say to their parents, what right do you have to boss me around? Jesus earned the right. He purchased that right. He went through everything that had to be gone through to be able to effectively stand up and say, I earned it. It belongs to me. I had it before, and I earned it now. So that in both cases, when you look at Jesus Christ, you look at the one who has the right and the authority to all preeminence. He has first place. He's the only one who is worthy to be worshipped. And so as favored second-born children... We learn that all things go through the authority of the firstborn, who is Jesus Christ. Now, is that position of firstborn, does that make sense to you? Is that clear? So when you see Jesus referred to as firstborn in the scripture, remember it's not first created. It's not referring to him as a created being. The concept there is it's a position that Jesus fills. As he earned the right, setting aside his glory and walking and living in the flesh. Now, this is important as a background to understand where Jesus is at. And understand what he's done. Because as we go on in this territory of Manasseh, something happens that's interesting. We're reminded of some girls that we've met before. Look in verse 3 of chapter 17. However, Zelophehad the son of Hepher, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, had no sons, only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, wonderful names, Mala and Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Terza. Love those names. And they came near before Eleazar the priest and before Joshua the son of Nun and before the leaders, saying, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our brothers. So, according to the command of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among their father's brothers. Now again, we've seen these girls before. Zelophehad's daughters. We did quite a bit of teaching on them back in the book of Numbers, chapter 27. Where they came to Moses and they said, We're concerned about our allotment, our inheritance in the promised land, because our father has no sons. And see, traditionally in Jewish uh, culture, the firstborn would have the inheritance and therefore could take care of the entire family. In their case, there was no firstborn son. And so culturally, they were left out. They would have no inheritance. They would have no way to provide for themselves. And they were looking at some trouble. So they wanted to have an inheritance. And they went to Moses. And and Moses prayed about it. And the Lord said, absolutely, you give them an inheritance. Later on, in Numbers 36, toward the end of that book, the situation is revisited. And the daughters receive from Moses firstborn status which was absolutely stunning and blew away all concepts of of women being pushed down, especially in that day and age. What the Lord did was effectively say, Zelophehad's daughters, you have the same rights and privileges of firstborn sons. Unheard of. In fact, because of that, the Lord said, oh, and by the way, you can marry whoever you wish, which also did not happen. That these, these women could now choose their husbands. They could pick and they could say, no, I don't like that guy. I'm not going to be with that guy. And so they had firstborn son status, even though they were women, even though they were daughters. The Lord being completely fair said, yes, I want my daughters cared for. I want them looked after. And they get to have this status. But, but the caveat in Numbers 36 is they have to marry. They can marry whomever they wish, but they have to marry within the tribe. They've got to keep it within the tribe of Manasseh. Why? Because other members of the tribe of Manasseh came along and were saying, look, if they marry outside of the tribe, say they marry someone from Judah, we're going to lose land. And our land could eventually get all carved up. And that's our inheritance too. So, so they say, okay, that's fine. You have to marry within the tribe, so Manasseh's land stays with Manasseh. That's the background. But now the people are in the land. And the daughters return to Joshua and they return to the leaders to claim their promised inheritance. Look at verse 5. Thus there fell ten portions to Manasseh beside the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is beyond the Jordan. Because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance among his sons. And the land of Gilead belonged to the rest of the sons of Manasseh. Now, I want you to track something here about Zelophehad's daughters. 
It's amazing. Because if not for this ruling, this obscure little situation, dealing with these ladies, the inheritance of Joshua could legally be disputed. So I'm not talking about Joshua here. I'm talking about our Joshua, Yeshua. If not for this ruling, a lawyer could come along down the line, open up the scriptures and say, Jesus Christ does not have the right that you say that he has. If not, for Zelophehad's daughters. Now follow this closely. Remember, the law stated, where there is no son, the inheritance goes to the daughters. That was the law that was in place here. Flip in your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 1. And keep your finger there in Joshua 17. Matthew chapter 1. So I'll go there together. You probably know this is the genealogy of Jesus. One of those listings of names and sometimes people will just kind of skip and dance right by real quickly to get on to the other stuff and we need not do that. There's so much here of wonder and of value. Beginning in verse 1, I just want to read a little bit of this to you. Matthew writes, The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram. <laughs> I like the name Ram. It's a good name. Ram was the father of Amminadab. I don't know if that's because he ran into people a lot or what, but Ram. Anyway, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab the father of Nashon and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, who, by the way, was the harlot, you recall. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Now, Jesse was the father of David the king, verse 6. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Verse 8, Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah, who, by the way, was one of the great kings of Israel. Many of these guys were kings. Uh, Hezekiah was one of the real good ones. He was the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Ammon, and Ammon, the father of Josiah, who was my favorite king other than David. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah. Make a little mental note of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. What's the deportation to Babylon? It's the Babylonian captivity. Jeconiah was the king at the time of the, of the Babylonian captivity when Israel was taken out of the land by, by God's call. Okay? After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, Kazuntai, and Akim the father of Eliad. Eliad was the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph. Is a familiar name, the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. The genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now that phrase, by whom, in verse 16, is important to note. It's in the feminine singular form, which means that it's referring not to Joseph, but to Mary. We need to understand that. Note that. Jacob was the father of Joseph. Joseph was the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born. By whom? By Joseph? No, by Mary, Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. It must refer to Mary and, and not to Joseph. Mary, by whom Jesus was born. And of course, this points out to us the virgin birth of Jesus. He was born by Mary, but not by Joseph. And the Bible told us that, prophesied it, Isaiah 7:14 said, The Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, Matthew presents for us the legal genealogy of Jesus by the line of Joseph. Tracking all the way down to Joseph, who is the husband of Mary. So legally speaking, if you're looking at a legal document, Joseph would be considered the father of Jesus. Now, you and I know he was not the real father of Jesus, but he was Jesus' father legally, customarily. 
culturally, Joseph stood in that place. And so Matthew draws Jesus' legal lineage all the way back through the line of Joseph. Now, he does that because he's showing that Joseph, if, if he had been in the right place and time to do so, Joseph had the legal right to the throne. Joseph, being of the line of David, all the way down, was the one who had legal authority to sit on the throne of David. And his son, Jesus, that firstborn legally of Joseph, not physically, but legally of Joseph, Jesus then has the legal right to sit on the throne of David. 2 Samuel 7.16 tells us, The Lord said to David, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. 2 Samuel 7.16 Your throne shall be established forever. It's called the Davidic Covenant. Now again, if I'm going too fast, just raise a hand and slow me down. But if you track this carefully, the Davidic covenant is the covenant that God promised David that someone in his line would sit on his throne eternally, forever. We understand that, looking back, that he's referring to Jesus ultimately who would sit on that throne. But all it would take to mess with this covenant is a good, sharp lawyer, as I mentioned before. For everything that I've told you about the legal background and the legal connection of Joseph to the throne and therefore Jesus to the throne could be blown away in an instant if you had someone who is searching the scriptures and looking for loopholes because there is one. There's a problem that comes out here. Look back at verse 11 again of Matthew chapter 1. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Jeconiah. Jeconiah is called some other things. He could be called Jerconiah because he was a terrible king. He was a lousy king. But he's also called in the Bible two other names. Jehoiakim and Coniah. Coniah. Turn in your Bibles now from Matthew chapter 1. You can leave there and go to Jeremiah chapter 22. Jeremiah 22. If you're not sure where to find that, it's somewhere about in the middle or so of the Bible. Jeremiah 22. We're going to chase this thing down. In verse 24. The Lord is speaking about and to this Jerconiah, this Jehoiakim, Coniah. And he says in verse 24, As I live, declares the Lord, even though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. Even if you were like a royal ring to me, he's speaking to Coniah, the king, I would pull you off. And I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life, verse 25. Yes, into the hand of those whom you dread, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. But as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return to it. Is this man, Coniah, a despised, shattered jar? Or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they had not known? Oh, land, land, land. Hear the word of the Lord. And this is it. Watch this. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless. A man who will not prosper in his days. For no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. It's called, gang, the curse of Jeconiah. From this point forward, the Lord declares that anyone who is of Jeconiah's line, anyone who comes directly out of his lineage, though he be connected legally to David, will never sit on the throne of David again. And there's the loophole. And our lawyer friend would say, Oh, see, Jesus has no legal right to the throne because of the curse of Jeconiah. Here he is in the lineage. He has no legal right. It's spiritually spoiled by Jeconiah, who is there right there in the lineage. He and his entire seed are written off by the Lord. And so, 
Jeconiah and his offspring Joseph ultimately could never sit on the throne of David because his forefather Jeconiah was cursed. Jesus being the legal son of Joseph legally cannot sit on the throne of David. And we were concerned about them finding his bones. I mean that's nothing. Let's turn to another genealogy. Flip now all the way over to the New Testament again to the book of Luke. Book of Luke, chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Chapter 3 talks about Jesus beginning his public ministry. He, he is baptized. He's going to begin actually his public ministry in chapter 4. But there in verse 23 of Luke chapter 3, it says the following. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. Being, and I love this line, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. (laughs) The son of Eli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos. Wait a minute, these are different names. The son of Nahum, the son of Hesli, the son of Nagai, the, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of, and you keep going on down, and you're going, these names don't line up with the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. There's a good reason for that, because if you go on down, you find out ultimately that this genealogy is not the genealogy of Joseph. It's the genealogy of Mary. That's why Luke's genealogy and Matthew's genealogy are different. One tracks Joseph's legal line all the way back to King David. The other one tracks Mary's legal line all the way back to King David. Verse 31, the son of Malia, the son of Minna, the son of Matetha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. Joseph came through Solomon, the son of David. Mary comes through Nathan, the son of David. And what's amazing here is we have these, these two... Mary's line shows us two different lineages coming together in this marriage of Mary and Joseph, mother and father of Jesus. And Joseph is the legal, the legal heir to the throne. But that doesn't work. Remember, that's cut off. That's cursed. So there's Mary, the mother of Jesus, but we still have a problem because it really shouldn't be passed on through, through the woman. So what do we do with this? Mary's line comes from David through Nathan. And so Jesus has the legal right to the throne because of Joseph, but that line is cursed. And yet he maintains that right to the throne because of Mary. And what's great about this is he's the only Jew in history now with documented proof of his right to the throne. Every other Jew who ever lived since A.D. 70. Remember what happened in A.D. 70. On the 9th of Av, the Jewish calendar, Tisha B'Av, is the celebration they have today. It's not a celebration, it's a morning, looking back at the destruction of the temple. And when the temple was destroyed, all of the genealogical records of the kings and priests of Israel were wiped out. And no Jew today can claim their lineage all the way back, because they don't have it. Except for one Jew. Jesus. Because at the time of the destruction of the temple, the genealogies in both Matthew and Luke had been written down and are preserved for us right there before your eyes in the scriptures. Jesus could take his legal papers and set it down before any of us and say, see, here is my right to rule on David's throne. Okay, but, but some might still argue, yeah, but that right through Joseph, that legal right's cut off because of Jeconiah. That other right through Mary... Well, she's a woman. What right does the woman have to an inheritance? I bet you know where we're going with this. Mary didn't have any brothers. Mary was a a woman, a daughter. Her father had no sons. The inheritance then of Eli is passed on to Mary and then passed on to her firstborn son. Thanks to an obscure ruling some 1,500 years before, the inheritance of Eli is legally passed on to Mary and legally passed on to her firstborn, Jesus Christ. If not for this little ruling back here, Jesus would have been legally barred through Joseph from ascending to the throne of David. But he is legally allowed now 
he is legally okayed to be sitting on that throne because of this ruling. I love this. Now, I don't know about you, but this kind of stuff just thrills me. I see this in Scripture, and I see how God worked it out 1,500 years before it had to happen. I watched this, and I said, this is awesome. The intricacy of Scripture, the fact is, God doesn't miss a thing. He makes sure every, every T is crossed, every I is dotted. There's nothing missing. You're not going to catch God in a legal loophole. He is too great for that. And what that tells me personally is even better. Sometimes we can think in our Christian lives, might there be something in my life that was missed? Is there a sin that I forgot to apologize for? Is there something I did or, or something that I, along the way, I, okay, I, I prayed the sinner's prayer, <laughs> I got baptized, um, I, I attended church, I studied the Bible. Is there something maybe that I missed so that when it comes time, when Jesus calls all his children home, that I might be left out? Listen, you and I may miss something, but God never misses a thing. He's got you covered. John chapter 10 verse 27 Jesus said my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand I and the father are one and this is why I started out going back to that preeminence of Jesus Christ the firstborn it's because of Jesus and His firstborn status that you and I as secondborn children are covered. We're covered. His blood completely does the job. 100%. And we don't have to worry, did I miss something? Is it possible I, I could, I could, there could be a legal loophole in my salvation? No. Not if your faith is in Jesus Christ, the firstborn over all creation. Because Jesus Christ has it covered. There are no legal loopholes with the Lord. He has the right of firstborn status and the right to sit on the throne of David ruling for all eternity as he very well will do. Now again, James Cameron can come out with all the movies he wants to trying to declare himself the king of the world. (laughs) Which he's not. And his movie about Jesus' bones it's going to flop. In fact, they were talking about it on Hannity and Combs tonight and just pointing out how all of the experts who win these bones... Did you know these bones were discovered in 1980? 27 years ago? And when they were discovered 27 years ago, the archaeologists who looked at these bones said, this has nothing to do... It's not important. It's not a big deal. 27 years later, this whole thing is unearthed. Interestingly, just a couple or three or four weeks before Easter... As Satan always does, notice this by the way, every year around this time, something anti-Jesus comes up. Satan tries to rattle people, tries to rattle Christians, and tries to undermine the possibility that someone else might believe in a resurrected Jesus Christ. And so here we are, and I was talking about this with Andrew Campbell yesterday, and he said something, I thought this was great, I said, did you hear about this whole thing about Jesus' bones, supposedly? And Andrew said, well, they can't be Jesus' bones. I just talked to him this morning. <laughs> I love that. Well, back to Joshua. So this allotment of Manasseh, we have the daughters of Zelophehad, and because of this ruling, it literally impacts and touches on the life. It bears on the, the royalty of Jesus Christ. I think that's wonderful. And then verses 7 through 11, back in Joshua chapter 17, the next several verses just describe this land. And in verse 12, we're going to go on from there, it says that the sons of Manasseh could not take possession of these cities because the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. And we see this over and over, by the way. Though they came in and they took the land, they didn't drive out the Canaanites. They didn't drive out the Jebusites. There were termites, as it were, in the house. There were still ites in the land, but they didn't drive out, and it would cause Israel problems all the way until eventually they are driven out. But they didn't drive them out of the land, verse 12. And verse 13 says, It came about when the sons of Israel became strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Okay, we'll just, we'll just put them to work. That'll take care of it. That never takes care of it. I'll just put my sin to work over here. <laughs> and that'll keep it busy. It never works. So they taxed and they controlled the Canaanites, but they were supposed to destroy them. And yet they didn't. Verse 14 going on, the sons of Joseph spoke to Joshua saying, Why have you given me only one lot and one portion for an inheritance? Since I am a numerous people whom the Lord has thus far blessed. 
Okay, these are the sons of Joseph. This is Ephraim and Manasseh coming back now to Joshua and saying, hey, we need more land. <laughs> We're a big people. We're pretty happening. And I know there are these other tribes in, in, you know, in Israel, but, but we're Ephraim and Manasseh. We're the sons of Joseph. Remember Joseph in the colorful coat? The favored one of Jacob? That's us. We need more land. It's a little prideful. We're a big tribe. We need a bigger inheritance. I hear this from time to time. I actually haven't heard it a whole lot at the bridge, which is wonderful. But I've heard it a lot in other churches where I've worked. People saying, I'm a great guy. I should have more land. I should have a larger inheritance. I should have a more important position. Look at what I can do. Look at how God has blessed me. I need more. I need more to do in this church. You should put me in charge of more stuff. That's what you should do. Verse 15, Joshua said to them, and this is, I love this. He says, hey, if you're a numerous people, go up to the forest and clear a place for yourself. There in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. Joshua's response to this is, hey, if you're so great... Take it on. Go for it. Go take more land. You think you're all that? Get busy. Show me. It's kind of like Chuck Smith. One time a guy came to him and said, Look, I have been uh, called by God to church leadership. And I'm here and I really believe God's calling me to be a leader in this church. And Chuck Smith said, Well, great. We have a bathroom downstairs in the church that needs cleaning. Why don't you start there? And that's what Joshua was saying. He's saying, You got your allotment of land. You want more? Go get it. Serve. Work for it. Make it happen. Don't come to me to give it to you. You go and fight for it. Prove it. Expand your own territory. Verse 16, the sons of Joseph said, Well, wait a minute. The hill country is not enough for us. And all the Canaanites who live in the valley land have chariots of iron. Both those who are in Bethshean and its towns and those who are in the valley of Jezreel. Okay, now they're backpedaling. Wait, we got to fight for it? No, no, we just want it given to us. I just want the position. I don't want to have to earn the position. I just want the inheritance. By the way, the uh, Bet Shon, that's a place that's visited on this Israel tour that we're going on next week. It's a very cool place. And the Valley of Jezreel, make a note of this, Bible students, it's Megiddo. The Valley of Jezreel, the Jezreel Valley is always the Valley of Megiddo, Har-Megiddo, Armageddon. Same place. Okay? Verse 17, Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, Hey, you're a numerous people and have great power. Only, and you shall not have one lot only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it. To its farthest borders it shall be yours. You shall drive out the Canaanites, even though they have chariots of iron, and even though they are strong. You want more territory? Great. Go to the hill country. Go up to the forest. Go to the hill where the wood is. That's a great piece of advice for us in the church. You want more territory? You want to expand what the Lord can do and is doing in your life? Go to the hill where the wood is. Go to Calvary. You take a look at how Jesus expands territory. You take a look at what Jesus did when he came into the world and earned his inheritance, earned the right as the firstborn son. Go where the wood is. People want responsibility and visibility and respectability in a church and that's all well and good, but they won't go where the wood is. They won't take themselves to Calvary, to the wood of the cross. That's how we get more land, my friends, by dying to ourselves. By taking on the example of Jesus Christ. Who said in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Even worse than servant, a step below. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for, for many. And Jesus took the ladder of success and turned it upside down. Greatness is in the lowness. Even in the church, we tend to think, okay, we've got, we've got elders and pastors up here, we've got deacons, and then we've got the rest of the serving body. And God says, no, it's the other way around. You want to be the great ones? Then you need to start out as the slave. In fact, you need to pursue that. You're a shepherd? Great. Be a servant. You're a servant? Great. Be a slave. You're a slave? Great. Keep seeing how low you can go. It's kind of like a holy limbo. You're getting down as low as you can. 
in service because that's what Jesus did. And the ultimate act of that service was the cross. And so again, Jesus Christ not only had all authority, He earned all authority. He had preeminence, but He also earned preeminence. As Hebrew 5, verse 8 tells us, although He was a son, He learned obedience from the things which He suffered. And having been made perfect, He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. He is the source. Now you might read that, and if that rattles you, it does from time to time some people. Wait a minute. Jesus having been made perfect? I thought He was already perfect. And if He's already already perfect, how can He be made perfect? It's the word, the Greek word, teleos. It's the same word Jesus pronounced when He was on the cross and said, It is finished! In other words, Jesus completed all things. All things are perfected in and through Jesus Christ. That's what the Hebrew writer is saying. Of course he was perfect. He was perfect before. He revealed that perfection to us and he is perfect today. But nobody can ever come up to the Lord and say, What right does he have to be an authority over me? What right? It's the right he had before. It's the right that he earned when he came. Now chapter 18 tells us in verse 1 that the whole congregation of the sons of Israel assembled themselves at Shiloh. And they set up the tent of meeting there, the tabernacle, and the land was subdued before them. The tabernacle was set up at Shiloh. So we're finally back to that tabernacle that they've been carrying all these low, these long 40 years or so. And now they're in the land and they're finally finding the resting place for the tabernacle. It's at Shiloh. And it'll be there for hundreds of years until ultimately David moves it onto Jerusalem, which is the place that God calls for it to be, the place where his name would reside. But until until that point in time, Shiloh was a central location in Israel, and so that's where they placed the tabernacle, in a central location, so that everybody could get to it from whatever direction they were coming. One of the things that's interesting to me about this barn and the Bridge Christian Fellowship is where God placed it. If you know anything about the history of this church, this was a very odd beginning. It wasn't to be a place where you plant a church. I mean, every church planner will tell you what you do to start a church is you go into a town, you go into a city, you go into a populated area, and you find the center of that area, and that's where you sink your roots. The Lord called for this church to be begun in a barn in the country, outside of town, a drive from town in, in either direction, and yet here we are now, three years, three and a half years down the line, and I can't think of a better place to be. Because the Lord is able to reach toward Oak Harbor. He's able to reach toward Anacortes. He's reaching in all directions in this interesting kind of central location. And I just love that because it has nothing to do with the strategies of men. I remember before we started the church, I was at a a seminar, a Calvary uh, pastor's retreat. And one of the guys was up there, didn't know me, didn't know what I was praying about, had no idea about the bridge. And he said, the Lord may be calling you to plant a church in the middle of nowhere, and he knows what he's doing, you just need to listen to him. And I'm like, that's what we're going to do. He knows what he's doing. And so he tells the people, you know, bring it to Shiloh. It's central to the land. Everybody can get to it right there in the middle, Shiloh. Remember Shiloh. We'll come back in just a second. Verse 2. So there remained among the sons of Israel seven tribes who had not divided their inheritance. So Joshua said to the sons of Israel, How long will you put off entering to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Provide for yourselves three men from each tribe that I may send them and that they may arise and walk through the land and write a description of it according to their inheritance then they shall return to me. Now this is interesting to me. Reuben and Gad had already claimed their land. Judah had claimed their portion of the land. Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, had claimed their portion of the land. Caleb was off fighting giants in the hills of Hebron. And even Zelophehad's daughters had claimed their possession. They had taken their possession of the promises of God. But here we discover, after all this, seven of those twelve tribes are still milling around with their hands in their pockets and they haven't taken possession of what was promised. They are still nomads in the land. I mean, you'd think 40 years of wandering would be enough. 
You'd think they'd want to be settled, but they're not. They're wandering around. They're not taking possession of anything. Their land is still not allotted to them. And apparently, it was the responsibility of each tribe to come to Joshua and ask for their portion. Joshua wasn't just giving it to them. They needed to come and ask for it. They needed to come and say, okay, we're ready for our land now. Zelophehad's daughters did it. Hey, we're ready for our land, our inheritance. Love those girls. Caleb, again, hey, I want my inheritance up in the hills of the giants. Great faith, Caleb. And Judah and Ephraim and, and Manasseh and even Reuben and Dan on the other side, they saw their inheritance and said, we want this. And they took it and it was given to them. But these seven tribes that are left over, we could call the slackers. Because they're not acting on any kind of faith. They're unaccountable, gang, to any region, and they're irresponsible for protecting any specific parcel of land. And that's important to note. Back in 1948, when the Jews became, became uh, when Israel became a nation, and the Jewish people were flooding back into the land, they had a system set up there that was very interesting. It's called the kibbutz system. You've heard the word maybe kibbutz. And what a kibbutz is, is it's like a commune. In fact, next week, part of the time, we're going to be living on a kibbutz in northern Israel. And the kibbutzes were set up not only so that Jews coming into the land would have somewhere that they could immediately be plugged in, they could live, they could teach their children in a school there locally, in a community, they'd eat together, they would farm together, they worked the land together, they built houses together, and each one of these kibbutzes, there are still numerous kibbutzes that are all over the country of Israel today. But the most important reason why those kibbutzes were formed in the first place was strategic. It was military. Because at each of those the people who were working out on the land as they were farming would have guns strapped to their back to protect this nation. Remember on May 14th of 1948, Israel became a nation. On May 15th, five Arab nations attacked Israel to destroy her. The very next day. And ever since that day, the people of Israel have been protecting to the best of their abilities their boundaries, their borders of their land because they have been under constant attack and even today. Even today you can turn on the news and they're still having to defend. The bus driver on our tour last year, a guy by the name of Avi, was raised in a bomb shelter. For the first 17 years of his life, they were let out, the children were let out of the bomb shelter for 20 minutes a day to play on the playground, and the rest of the time they lived underground. Because he was in northern Israel, and at that time Syria had the Golan Heights, and they were launching rockets on almost a daily basis from the top of the Golan Heights down into northern Israel and taking out these kibbutzes. And so the kibbutzes, while they had a communal aspect to them, they were also military, they were also protective. I tell you that because right here we've got seven tribes who are not taking responsibility for their part of the land. And their part of the land could easily be taken over again by pagans, by Canaanites, and could be lost. And so Joshua has a right to be a little upset with them and say, What are you doing? Take possession of the land. What are you standing around for? Get busy and take the land that was promised to you. And I wonder how many Christians need to answer the same question. Joshua's question, How long will you put off taking possession? of what the Lord has promised you. Too many Christians today, and I'm just going to give you a little personal opinion here. (laughs) Too many Christians today want the freedom to float. Too many Christians want to just kind of bib and bob from, from one church to the next as long as it's meeting their needs, as long as they feel like it's going their way, until things get a little hard, until maybe there's a, a disagreement or a dispute or a problem in a relationship, and then they're off to the next church. Or until the teaching of the pastor is really not where... They, you know, the Revelation study was great, but, but now we're in Judges. and I, I think you know, they're teaching something else over here. And this, this kind of moving from place to place, never really taking a specific parcel and rolling up your sleeves and digging in and saying, this is where God has called me to be. And it concerns me because I especially think in this area, these islands... I think there's a little demon spirit of independence that's running around these islands having a field day. And he's grabbing hold of people and going, Hey, hey, you got to see what they're doing over there. Oh, oh really? Okay. okay. Oh, you got to see what they're doing. Oh, okay, okay. And people moving around and moving around instead of just sticking to one place and digging in and working 
And honestly, I think the Lord would say to us, find your place, dig in, make a difference where I have put you. And as pastor of the bridge, hey, if that's the bridge, praise the Lord. Roll up your sleeves and let's get busy taking this land. If it's not the bridge, praise the Lord. Make sure that you're involved where the Lord has called you to be. Make sure you get connected. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12 just for a moment. Romans chapter 12. I share this with you because something has been lost in the church today. As people have have slowly begun moving away from denominationalism. And in some ways that's a good thing because a lot of the denominations have really stuck to the old traditions and are not willing to go to be fresh in what the Lord is doing. However, as people have moved away from denominationalism, there has also been a a movement away from any kind of loyalty to a church family. Any kind of loyalty to a place where they can plug in and actually be involved. People will say, well, I just don't feel led to be in one church. Or people will say, well, I don't feel called to be tied down to a certain group of people. I want to be a Christian at large. And what we end up with is, like the seven tribes, just kind of wandering around the land nomadically, not staying long enough anywhere to truly make a difference. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 6. He says, we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Each of us, because of this, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches in his teaching. Or he who exhorts in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. He says in verse 9, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And if possible, verse 18, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. This is a list of things, gang, that would be very difficult to do if we were all just Christians at large. This is a list that as I read through it, it speaks of involvement in each other's lives. It speaks of putting up with each other even when we tick each other off. It speaks of being in a place and sinking our roots and serving the Lord where He has called us to serve. Now listen, sidebar, I've moved from different church to different church. As a pastor, I've served five years at one church and three years over here and and then five years here. And and I've been called and been placed at different churches. And I know many of you were at another church at one time and are either at the bridge right now or maybe you're here for Bible studies on Wednesday night. And I'm not trying to get down on anybody here. In fact, I'm probably preaching to the choir tonight. But we've got to be in a mindset that says the best way to take possession of the promises of God is to stick it out with each other loving each other and practicing everything that God has gifted us to do right here together because there's accountability in that there's responsibility in that if I'm hopping from one church to the next no one really knows who I am and I'm not accountable to anybody and I can do pretty much whatever I please but you know the longer you're in any particular place the better known you are and the better known you are the more likely someone's going to find out that you're not all that. (laughs) That you're not everything that you present yourself to be. And that's okay. Because we're a body. We're a family. And there's only one perfect one. There's one perfect firstborn as we talked about. That being Jesus. Well, back in Joshua chapter 18. We look at verse 5. And Joshua tells them, here's what I want you to do. I want you to send out these guys, these surveyors, They're going to go out and survey the land. 
And they shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall stay in its territory on the south. The house of Joseph, that's Ephraim and Manasseh, shall stay in their territory on the north. You shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me. I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. For the Levites have no portion among you, because their priesthood, the priesthood of the Lord, is their inheritance. Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh, now he's describing them, remember, they've received their inheritance eastward beyond the Jordan, which Moses the servant of the Lord gave them. So, in verse 8, the men arose and went, and Joshua commanded those who went to describe the land, saying, Go and walk through the land and describe it, and return to me, and then I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went and they passed through the land and they described it by the cities and the seven divisions in a book and they came to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh. Now, oh, let me finish this out. And Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord and there Joshua divided the land to the sons of Israel according to their divisions. Joshua didn't do the work for them. And that's key here. He sent them out, survey the land, figuring it out, make those boundary markers, come on back in, and then we'll cast lots before the Lord, we'll pray, and He will give you the portion that He wants to give you. You check it out, He says. You determine the boundaries, and then we'll take it to the Lord. Something in ministry that I've discovered and learned kind of the hard way. I've discovered that bright ideas burn me out. I have learned over the years that in pastoring, People have incredible ideas. And on a weekly basis, I might get 10 or 15 different great ideas for what can be done at the church. As a young pastor, I felt like I had the responsibility to follow up on every one of those ideas. And it wore me out. Programs that people thought would be great. And so I developed an entire program and discovered that that person never showed up for it. You know? Services that, if man, if you do this, this would be the greatest thing in the world. So we do that. And they don't come. Bright ideas burn me out. This is what I've learned. But more than that, I've learned that I'm no savior. I'm just one of the body. And it's not my job to give you your possession of the land. That's your job. That's your job. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 says the following. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Now now note that, and I think there's something to this. There are five roles here that are talked about by Paul. Five kind of leadership roles for a church body. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. That is probably Paul's description of how to pastor a church. I think he's describing right there an ideal church staff. A church staff that has a teacher and a prophet and an apostle and an evangelist and a pastor. And not just five. I mean, as the church grows, you can have more. But, but I think those are the roles that are probably more important than sometimes the roles that we come up with. Anyway, I just thought of that. But he says, I give these five roles for the equipping of the saints. For what? For the work of service. To the building up of the body of Christ. He doesn't say, I gave these five roles to do the work of the service. He doesn't say, I gave these five roles to do the work of the service and, and to these, these five guys got to do all the building. No, he says, I gave them to equip the saints for the work of the service, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all together attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the statue, stature which belongs to Jesus Christ. Now you might say, okay, Rick, that's great. What if I'm not an apostle? or a prophet, or an evangelist, or a pastor, or a teacher? What if I'm not one of those five things? What if obviously I just don't fit, I'm not gifted in any of those areas? What then? What am I supposed to do? Joshua gives a great prescription for us. His prescription is survey the land and bring the information back to Shiloh. What does that mean? Survey the land and bring the, invitation, the, the, the information back to Shiloh. Shiloh is an important word in the scripture. And you Bible students may recall the first time it was mentioned. We see it here. They're at, at Shiloh in verse 1 of Joshua 18. Verses 8, 9, and 10. They're right there. They're at Shiloh. And he says, you go out and survey the land and bring that information back here to Shiloh. Well, the first time Shiloh is mentioned in scripture is in that prophecy of Israel. Jacob speaking, Genesis 49 verse 10, and he says the following. 
The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him be the obedience of the peoples. It's an interesting prophecy. There are three possible interpretations of that phrase, until Shiloh comes, but all three are messianic. That is, all three have to do with Messiah. It could mean, literally, it could be translated, that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to Shiloh. could be translated that way. Or, it could be translated, until he comes to whom it belongs. Something's blowing over there. Until he comes to whom it belongs. To whom what belongs? The, the ruler's staff. So it could be saying, someone doesn't want us to continue in here. It could be saying that the, the ruler's staff will not depart until he comes to whom it belongs. And he's talking again about Jesus, the coming of Jesus. Or it could be as we read it until Shiloh comes. Why am I talking about this? It's historically very likely that the very weekend that the Jewish people lost the right to self-rule, the weekend that the scepter departed from Judah, for Judah was the tribe that, that was given authority to rule. All the kings come out of the tribe of Judah. Remember that. And the scepter stayed in Judah's hands. They had the right to self-rule. Even having been conquered, even under the oppression of Rome, they still had self-rule. Until one particular day, when Rome decreed that the Jews no longer had the right to the death penalty. The Jews no longer had the right to exact capital punishment, which to the Jewish mind was the ultimate end of the scepter. That's where it stopped. It said that on that day, rabbis and priests from the temple were weeping and tearing their clothes and sitting in ashes in the city of Jerusalem over this horrible event that had happened because the scepter was ripped from Judah by the Romans and they were saying, Shiloh, Shiloh hasn't come. Messiah has not come. On that day, a 12-year-old boy was in the temple courts astounding the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers with his knowledge. 12-year-old Jesus on that very day was there, present. Shiloh had come. They just didn't realize it yet. It's an amazing prophecy that directs us straight to Jesus and to His coming and to the promise that Jacob said, you are going to have the ruler's staff, you're going to have the right to self-rule and authority until this point. And at this point, Shiloh has to have come or he will not come. And Shiloh did come in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, the window for the Jewish Messiah is very small. And Jesus made it right in the middle. His coming was perfect. Now, Shiloh means, and this is wonderful, it means literally in the Hebrew, rest. The word shalom, peace, comes from the root of Shiloh, rest. Rest. And isn't that exactly what we think of when we consider Jesus Christ? Rest. Kyle and Delich, in their excellent commentary on the Old Testament, said the following. They say, we regard Shiloh as a title of the Messiah. There's perfect agreement as to the fact that the patriarch is here proclaiming the coming of Messiah. Judah was to bear the scepter with victorious lion courage until the future Shiloh, in the future Shiloh, the obedience of the nations came to him. And his rule over the tribes was widened into the peaceful government of the whole world. The personal interpretation, that is of Shiloh being a man, not just being a place, the personal interpretation of Shiloh stands in the most beautiful harmony with the constant progress of the same revelation. Israel's Shiloh refers directly to Messiah and to the peace that Jesus alone can bring. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13 But now in Christ Jesus you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace. And you may recall those wonderful words of Jesus in Matthew 11:29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest. Rest. Shiloh. For your souls. Where do we get rest? We get it at Shiloh. And so, the prescription, if you are 
not an apostle and not a prophet and not an evangelist, not a pastor, not a teacher, or better yet, you're not even sure really what your gifting is. You're not sure what your place in the body is. Last night, uh, last week, last Wednesday, we talked about our sphere of influence. I'm not sure what my sphere of influence is supposed to be. Joshua says to these seven tribes who are wondering, where are we supposed to be? He says, survey the land and bring it back to Shiloh. And that's exactly what I encourage you to do. Survey the land, bring it back to Shiloh. Survey the land, do your homework. Prepare your heart, pray about it. Scout out what's going on in the church fellowship. Look for places where you might plug in that might be where the Lord wants you to be. But then, get yoked up to Jesus. Always, always, always bring it back to Shiloh. He is our peace. He is our place of rest. And then, if we do that, survey the land, bring it back to Shiloh. Trust everything to our Lord Jesus. If we will do that, then when Jesus comes, He's not going to find you and me standing around with our hands in our pockets wondering where we belong. He's going to find us serving. And He's going to say those words that I long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, we just pray to You tonight that You will reveal to us where our portion is in the land. God, we've said this over and over and over through the last several weeks that we want to take possession of the promises that You've given. We want our faith to grow and to expand. We want our our call to ministry. Father, our spiritual gifting. Our life in the Spirit. We, We want to see that spread out. We want to engage in that process and live that life. And Father, the reality is sometimes we just don't know what that means or how that's supposed to look or where we're supposed to serve, or or what you've called us to. And I pray, Father, for those of us gathered here tonight, but I also pray for the whole body gathered here at the bridge, that you would teach us our place. As we survey the land, as we ask questions, as we seek and ask and knock, like Jesus told us to, that you reveal, reveal to us those things that we need to know to serve you the best that we possibly can. And Father, once we begin to understand that and come into our own allotment, our inheritance, Lord Jesus, we just want to bring it back to you again and again and again. Our service is in your name. Our teaching, it's in your name. Our prophesying, Father, it's in your name. Our hospitality is in your name, Jesus. All that we do in caring for and loving one another, we do in your name, Jesus. For we know it's by you that we truly have rest. Lord, go with us tonight. Protect us. It's a little stormy outside. Keep us safe. But especially, Lord, implant your word in our hearts that we might be doers of your word and not hearers only. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.